I'm going to let you in on a little behind-the-scenes information about what goes into making church. I write the titles for these sermons a good six to eight weeks before you see them published anywhere, before I even really have any kind of idea what the sermon is going to be about. I have the kernel of an idea, and usually by the end of it, by the time you hear it on a Sunday morning, it is something completely different from what I had planned. The idea was, with our month of October having the theme of heritage, was that I was going to pick up all the major important threads of our Unitarian and our Universalist history and weave them together in a way of naming what the gifts are that we have inherited as Unitarian Universalists today. And by 3 p.m. on Friday, I had what was probably going to be a three-hour sermon because <laughs> that's a lot of history, folks. There's a lot that goes into making us who we are today. There is a lot that we have inherited, and I just can't make you sit here for that long this morning. So instead, I came in yesterday, and I thought to myself, well, what if we just picked one day, one day out of our Unitarian and Universalist and Unitarian Universalist history and see what the gifts are that we can weave together out of that? So let's take, um, say, October 1st seems like a pretty good uh, day to look at. On October 1st, 1844, the new Meadville Seminary in Meadville, Pennsylvania, opened its doors to its students for the first time. It was built with the intention of training new ministers who would go and serve our Western churches, West being west of Pennsylvania at that point and kind of up to the edge of the Mississippi River. It was an alternative to Harvard, but still as scholarly and rigorous as Harvard Seminary was, teaching all of the academic rigor that a minister needed to know, catching up ministers with a liberal arts education if they hadn't had a chance to go to college previously, and sending them out to serve our Unitarian churches in the West, which, as I said, ended at about the Mississippi River and then picked up again around Denver and made its way out to California. There was a whole section in the middle of the country in those Great Plains states that hadn't quite merited having a church planted there yet. The joke was, of course, that Unitarians waited until a town or a city had a library and an opera house, and then they knew it was time to go plant a church. But this does not mean that the people of the Plain States, the people in what we derisively call flyover country, did not have a chance to learn and grow into Unitarianism at the time. October 1st, 1852 marks the birth of Eleanor Gordon a very important figure in our history, and if you haven't heard the name before, I'm not surprised. Eleanor Gordon, along with her childhood best friend, Mary Safford, were founders of what came to be known as the Iowa Sisterhood, 
a group of women who came into their own understanding of religion and a Unitarian religion influenced by family and roots in New England and started to form churches in those states overlooked by the officialdom of Unitarianism at the time. Eleanor and Mary were, like I said, lifelong friends from childhood. Eleanor had attended a Presbyterian church and in Sunday school figured out pretty early on that there was nothing there for her. It wasn't stirring anything. They didn't like her asking questions. I think we've heard that story a couple of times in the last few weeks, no? Mary Safford wanted to be a preacher from about the age of four, and stories relate that as a child, she would stand on a tree stump in her backyard and preach to whoever was listening, be it family or creatures who happened to be wandering through the fields. They decided they were going to be lifelong business partners, that they would work together to open churches. And in Hamilton, Illinois, where they had grown up together, they organized a Unitarian church on their own with Mary as the minister and Eleanor as the Sunday school teacher. And that's the partnership they had for a long time. They built the church into something huge and they were recognized by folks in the Western Unitarian Conference as having some kind of a magic formula, some sort of success. Mary was officially ordained by the, Western by the Iowa State Convention of Unitarians and was invited to become the minister of their church in, I didn't write it down in my notes. How about that? Uh, Humboldt, Humboldt, Iowa. Eleanor followed her to run the Sunday school again. And as Eleanor began to grow in her practice of her ministry of education, she started to be recognized as a minister as well and was called to her own churches. She served in Sioux City for a while and then called on her own into Iowa City as well. The women of the Iowa Sisterhood about 25 of them or so, from about the years 1880 to 1930, opened up at least 18 churches in the Great Plains states during that time, many growing in ways much more successfully than some of the more established churches that surrounded them. They gathered together and taught one another and supported one another. They gathered in those of like minds and like hearts who felt a call that they needed to answer that the regular institution of the time couldn't seem to find the wherewithal to agree with or support. While they were welcomed by the immigrant populations of the communities that they served, they were still kind of held in suspect by the elites and the establishment. There's Eleanor, and there's Mary Safford. The reason the sisterhood was able to persist as long as it did, despite the 
disparaging of women in the ministry, in the institution, were for two reasons. One, nobody else really wanted to be a minister in the areas where they were gathering their churches together, so they were pretty much left alone. And two, the secretary of the Western Unitarian Conference, something of an independent organization uh, separate from the American Unitarian Association, although related at the time, the Western Unitarian Conference, led by a man, a minister named Jenkin Lloyd-Jones, gave them their full support, or at least Jones did. Jenkin Lloyd-Jones had something of a similar story to the Eleanor Gordons and the Mary Saffords. He was rejected by the traditional Christians that his family tried to be a part of. They had grown up in the Welsh Unitarian Church and couldn't quite find a foothold. They were never accepted into full community into any of the Christian churches they tried to attend. Jones joined the army for the Civil War, fought in several battles, broke his foot in one of his last battles when a wagon ran over it and walked with a cane for most of the rest of his life and took on an attitude of pacifism for the remainder of his life after that. And after a lifetime of rejection in Christian communities, he decided, inspired by the Unitarianism of his own ancestors, that he was going to enter the Unitarian ministry. And he went where all Western Unitarians went to train for the ministry to that Meadville seminary. He had never had a chance to go to college, so first they put him in their preparatory program where they trained him in the liberal arts education he would need to be an academically rigorous minister. But unlike many of the men who entered Meadville at the time, Jenkins Lloyd-Jones was not a, a city boy. He was a country boy. And while he was accepted at Meadville, he was a little bit looked at askance because he didn't have that elite cosmopolitan upbringing that so many Unitarian ministers had. Jenkins Lloyd-Jones was, I'm just going to call it, too progressive for his time. He accepted and actually supported women being in the ministry. They had to be in the ministry, according to him. There was no reason not to have them there, for they approached ministry, he thought, from a much more pastoral edge than an intellectual one, though they were not, as he would admit, devoid of intellectual rigor themselves. And like the women of the Iowa Sisterhood, because of the experience he had of the rejection by mainstream Christian churches, he sought after a religion that was something more than Christianity, not settled only in the Christian faith. And eventually this would bring him at odds with other members of that Western Unitarian Conference. There was a divide between those who thought that Unitarianism should and strictly be a liberal Christian faith rooted in Christianity and the unity school 
as they came to call Jenkins Lloyd-Jones and his supporters who believed in a religion that included but still somehow surpassed and embraced more than just the Christian faith, not to the exclusion Try that. Okay. It's it's blinking and doing something weird here. Um, where was I? It came to a vote in the Western Unitarian Conference. Would Unitarianism in the West be a strictly Christian religion, or would it have this vision of something larger? that Jenkins Lloyd-Jones and his followers proposed. Jones was joined by the women of the Iowa Sisterhood who had been practicing a much broader sense of religion themselves and felt like they had more of a chance and more of a stake in a religion that didn't hold to the conventional ideas of Christianity that had kept them out of the ministry for so long. And so they joined with Jones and defeated the measure to name Christianity as the be-all and end-all of Unitarianism in the West. Rather tellingly, the president of Meadville at the time said that the Western Unitarian Conference had been ruined by a company of women. Just to see the issue in sharp relief. What Jones sought and what the Aya Sisterhood practiced was what he would call a religion of blessed humanity. Jesus wrote no creed, he wrote, appointed no bishop, organized no church, and taught no trinity. Taking these away, you have, instead of Christianity, only a blessed humanity left. Reverence lies not in the acceptance of dogma bequeathed to you, but in the receptive spirit, the truth-seeking attitude. He found that religion is a verity best understood when least defined. What we will find in our search, he thought, is not creeds to protect, but deeds to accomplish. And, he discovered, in ethics, all religions meet. <clears throat> At the turn of the century, all of this started to fade away. Eventually, the Western Unitarian Conference and the American Unitarian Association reconciled themselves and became partners. As the West grew and the towns where the sisterhood had founded, their churches grew and the churches grew with them, all of a sudden, the men who trained in ministry thought those posts were very attractive. And men were called into those pulpits By about 1910, the sisterhood had dwindled, and there were only about seven women left ordained in Unitarian ministry at the time. Eleanor Gordon and Mary Safford still served churches this whole time, but their focus started to shift towards women's suffrage as the church started to abandon them more and more. Meanwhile, the religion of blessed humanity that Jones proposed was overshadowed 
by a heavy swing back towards the intellectual religion and the rise of the humanists in the 1920s. The sisterhood all but disappeared. And it wouldn't be until the 1970s when we would see women ordained in any great numbers again in Unitarian Universalism. So today, when you walk into a Unitarian Universalist congregation, when you walk into Unitarian Universalism, you walk into a church where now 60% of our ministers are women. Today, you walk into a faith that is inclusive of Christianity, but not exclusively Christian. Today, you're served by ministers who are treated, who are trained, not just in the academic rigors, but in the pastoral skills necessary to be a fully rounded minister. It's tempting to stop right there, to say these are great gifts that were received over time. Good things came out of all of that. But it's a little easy sometimes to rest on our laurels, to rest in the triumph that we have inherited over time. It makes it easy for us to say sometimes, hey, thanks, uh, your work is done. We are, we are happy to accept what you have given us. but we know that's not the case. Life is a lot more complicated than that. Sometimes the gifts that we receive in our inheritance can come in the form of caveats as well. Jenkins Lloyd-Jones, for example, I mentioned he was too progressive for his time Not many people around him accepted the vision of the world that he had, and he burned a lot of relationships behind him as he got older towards the time he died because his friends and his colleagues weren't latching on to his vision as wholeheartedly and as passionately as he would. And the thing is, he was right in the long run. Jenkins Lloyd-Jones was right about the need for women in ministry and the fact that they belong there. He was right about the richness of a faith that is not exclusionary in any way. And as a pacifist, he was right about the need for peace. Even though straight into World War I, he was reviled by many Unitarians who couldn't quite take that final step. He didn't live to see our faith tradition progress into accepting his ideals. And he died very lonely. The cutting edge of progress is still today hard for so many of us to grasp. Even among us stalwart Unitarian Universalists, and Universalists, we know progress isn't instant. We don't snap our fingers and make a better world. But unlike Jenkins Lloyd-Jones, 
And we can take this from the lesson of his life, this caveat. Sometimes it's important to find the balance between being right and staying in relationship with those who haven't quite caught on to what you're trying to sell, to the vision you're trying to share. The point of progress, at least in our Unitarian Universalist faith, is to widen the circle of those we call beloved, to those we deem worthy of being inside the circle of beloved community. But the trip inside the circle isn't always easy. The Iowa Sisterhood were pioneers for women in ministry. They managed to join the circle of those who could be on the inside of ministry in Unitarianism. But while they joined, they still weren't necessarily welcomed. It was a constant struggle. It would be a whole century before we began to see the fruit of their pioneering arise again in the church, before we started to see women ordained in great numbers again in our faith tradition. And even then, even when women were able to join the circle once again, they still had to struggle against the vestiges of sexism and sexual harassment. It wasn't easy, it was still a struggle. The only reasons that the Iowa Sisterhood managed to survive as long as they did was one, an acceptance of their sense of self and their sense of call that they could not ignore. A stubborn perseverance to answer that call that they wouldn't let anyone tell them they were not worthy of. And they were able to persist because one person inside the circle had the wherewithal to step out for a little bit and keep a door open and offer support and encouragement and resources so these women could answer their call. There are still people who struggle to get inside the circle, the circle we call beloved community. And we can see that struggle reflected through just the history of the answer to the question, who is a minister? Women couldn't be ministers until they found their way in. People of color in Unitarian and Universalism struggled to find their place in ministry. Gay and lesbian ministers struggled to find their way into acceptance. And even today, our trans ministers struggle to find acceptance in the churches they are called to serve and the faith that they feel compelled to follow. They join the circle but sometimes the welcome lags behind. And that's the story of the tension we live with on a daily basis in our circles. We are caught in the tension of being called to widen that circle ever more and ever more. 
coupled with watching the circle change and change again as it grows. And the truth is, more human beings fear change than embrace it. And that's true inside the circle as well. So resistance to change and resistance to the welcome is inevitable. It is a piece of our history in the past that we repeat. It is part of our inheritance too. But resistance is also futile because eventually we catch on, even if it takes a hundred years. We have inherited a church that aspires to a wide welcome. And we have inherited the stories of struggle that it takes to get there. And we have inherited the model of our forebears in all of their successes and in all of their mistakes too and the warnings we learn from them. We have inherited the model of a stubborn perseverance in service of where the spirit of life calls each of us. And the courage to be the insider who finds the wherewithal to step outside the circle to offer that support and those resources. And from the mistakes of the past, we inherit a call to humility in the face of disagreement, to stay in relationship instead of burning them behind us when we don't quite see eye to eye. And we have inherited the strength to struggle for the reality of beloved community, for the widening and the widening still of that circle of beloved community into its next expansion and its next. October 1st, what a difference a day makes. Maybe so.